1: Ladies and gentlemen, thrilled to have you here for another epic debate, and want to let you know, if it's your first time here at Modern Day Debate, we are a neutral platform hosting debates on science, religion, and politics. And also, given that we are neutral, we have no positions, no statements, nothing like it, we're purely a platform for people to make their case. And want to let you know, though, folks, no matter what walk of life you are from, we really do hope you feel welcome. Also... If you are sick in the head like us and you like controversial, juicy debates, want to let you know, consider hitting that subscribe button as we have many more to come. For example, at the bottom right of your screen, we are very excited as this week we will be hosting Dr. Michael Shermer and inspiring philosophy on whether or not christianity is dangerous so that will be a fun one and the kickstarter for that project we are thrilled we only have a couple of hours left folks until it closes thank you guys so much for helping make that event possible we have past our original goal and then we passed our stretch goal so we we're excited to use that to kind of build modern day debate into a bigger platform and want to say thank you guys the way we're going to do that by the way is by having bigger debates more in-person debates once the restrictions lift hopefully you know, hopefully this summer so with that want to let you know a few other things one today's format is going to be pretty easy going and it's going to be a short and sweet one in terms of the debate time so it's going to be about 10 minutes from alex dr malpass on your right and then it'll be open conversation with both him and dr rouser for about maybe an hour and then maybe a little less than an hour followed by q a also one last channel housekeeping thing of today's Super Chats will be going to the Gary Sinise Foundation, which basically, this is a foundation we've checked the charity watchdogs just to be sure that they're accountable and transparent, and they do a great job. They've got a great rating in terms of helping former military people reintegrate into society, just kind of helping them, as that can sometimes be a challenging process, and we want to support our troops as much as possible. And so with that, we are excited to let you know you can always Feel free. I'm not joking, folks. I've only had one person ever take me up on it in like two years. We are happy to send you the receipt for that donation. We want to have full transparency ourselves that 100% of the Super Chats actually goes to that charity donation. So for real, even if it's your first time here, folks... I'm happy to get an email. It's not rude at all. It's a good thing to have that accountability. And so we will send you the receipt if you'd like to see it 100%. So with that, we're going to jump right into it before we do. I want to mention both of our guests are linked in the description. So if you'd like to hear more from our guests, if you'd like to read more from our guests, folks. You have to click on those links. They're waiting for you right now. They're conveniently already there. And so, with that, we're going to get started. Dr. Malpass, Alex, thanks so much for being with us, and the floor is all yours.
2: Okay, thanks very much. Um, I don't think I'll need ten minutes to start this off. Um, partly because I'm going to present exactly the same argument that I did last time I was on here. Um, so we're going to be talking about the evidential argument from evil. Um, and I have what I call a modest version of that argument and I'll skillfully share my screen right now. Uh, I totally know how Zoom works. Amazing, look at that. Um, right, so you can see that, presumably. We, so this is we, this is my argument. We can't see it
1: yet, actually. Uh, no? The screen share might not be...
2: Oh, there, now it's showing. Oh. Perfect. Cool. Okay, good. So this is my modest, evidential argument. So some quick definitions at the beginning. Uh, by S, I just mean some fact about suffering. So it doesn't really matter for purposes of explaining the argument what that is, but it could be, you know, whatever your favourite kind of example of suffering is for these types of discussions, to slot that in. Um, I is uh, the hypothesis of indifference. So that just means basically something like um, the kind of, nature and context to moral agents taking their widest sort of sense um is not the product of of a, of a mind whether benevolent or um or evil or whatever it's just not the product of some mind that made it and then uh, t is just the hypothesis of theism and by theism here i just mean the standard um omni god so all-powerful good all-knowing creator of the universe um And so given those little definitions at the beginning, the argument is simply just the probability um, that that fact about suffering that you're thinking of um, would be true given um, the hypothesis of indifference is quite high. Um, Premise two, the probability that that fact of suffering that you're thinking of would be true given theism is quite low. And that just means, you know, Step three is just rephrasing steps one and two, really, just saying that the probability of suffering on indifference is higher than the probability of that suffering on theism. Um, And what that just means by definition, really, is just that S is therefore evidence that favors indifference over theism. So it's evidence that um, should make you think that um, indifference is more likely than theism is. Um, A couple of words about this before we crack into the, before we see what. Randall wants to say about this, Um, I think, well, there's there's a lot of different ways you can go about it, but why why should you think that suffering is um, quite high on the hypothesis of indifference? Well, that's because there's no reason to think that um, if we're kind of the, if we are kind of the product of an evolutionary process or something like that, that's not designed with, um, by some mind that has our interests at heart or something. Um, but there's no reason at all to think that there wouldn't be uh, all sorts of um, sufferings all over the place, you know, famines and mistakes in nature. You know, nobody's looking out for you. There's, you know, you'd expect that type of thing to happen, it seems to me. There's no reason to expect that everything would be cozy and like, sweet and well set up for, for life. You'd expect sufferings to be there. Um, so it just means that it seems like it's quite, quite likely that it would be the case. Um, we can obviously go into a lot more detail about that. That's just a sort of thumbnail. Um, but then, given theism, um, you would at least prima facie think that certain types of sufferings are not what you'd expect to see. Um, and you know, we're used to thinking about the kind of very strong way of putting this in the kind of logical problem of evil, where, which is not the argument I'm making, but you know, there's an intuitive force behind thinking: well, look, if somebody's all, all good, like perfectly good, um, and can do anything, and knows about suffering that they could intervene and prevent. Then their goodness means that they would intervene in that, um, and that makes you think that, well, there shouldn't be massively um, egregious kinds of suffering out there. There might be some, um, fair enough, if it serves a purpose or whatever. But where it seems to be pointless and extreme and unnecessary. Um, serving no real purpose, that really does seem like the sort of thing you wouldn't expect to see. And yet, if we just look around, uh, that sort of thing happens all over the place. People dying of starvation, animals ripping each other to bits, whatnot, over millions of years, blah, blah, blah. Right. So the world seems to be full of suffering, and it seems to have no real purpose to it. It doesn't seem like it serves any noble end that we can discern. And that just doesn't seem like the sort of thing we would see if theism was there. And it does seem like the sort of thing we'd see if there was no um, intentional agent behind the whole scheme of things. Um, I just so I would also just say, look, I'm not, um, I'm not like a super massive advocate for this argument. I kind of like this argument and it's fun to talk about. Um, but it's not what I spend most, that's certainly not where I spend my time, um, in a kind of academic philosophy, religion sense working on. So this is kind of, for me, interesting. I don't have a lot staked on it. Um, I think the analogy, best analogy is I've been playing a lot of chess recently, and I think of this. It's more a question of kind of trying out an interesting-looking opening, but without any real. I'm more interested to see how the moves play out and what the game is like when you start banging like this, rather than thinking I'm going to crush some Christian uh, theist here and win and prove something or whatever. It's not like that. I'm more interested in exploring um, what sort of moves people make when when this argument is presented and. Uh, and how the ideas relate to each other and stuff rather than kind of winning or something. And it might just be that um, Randall's thought about this a lot more than me and has a, has the right things to say and can say them much more confidently. And I'm probably going to be thinking things through as I'm speaking, I think, today. So it might just come across that Randall wins because he's better informed about the argument than me. So I just thought I'd put that out there just in case I get utterly crushed today. <laughs> That's my excuse. Anyway, um, Do you want me to leave that up or I mean, or I could take it off and we can just talk.
1: I think we could bring it back up once you refer to it. Otherwise we will jump back into the full screen mode with both
0: people. Cool. I'll stop sharing
1: now. Excellent. And the floor is all yours gentlemen. Thank you.
0: Well, uh, thank you, Alex. Uh, I appreciate the argument. I appreciate the clarity of it. And also sort of the, the humility with which you presented it. I mean, sometimes these arguments, these debates, right? They, they start off as, as you kind of said, of the need to kind of pillory the other position into the ground. Um, and so I think you've, you've certainly recognized that reasonable people can, can disagree in these kinds of issues. And maybe the first thing I'd like to say uh, with that having been said is, is that it is important to underscore the limits, which I think you've already touched on, but I just like to reiterate or underline that point. So the same argument, which I think is a good argument, it's well-formed, it's valid for sure, Um, the same argument could be used, however, with any number of other apparent facts in the world that a person might believe they know. And so a person might say, yeah, there's this piece right here that Alex has summarized, and there are all these other things which I think are more likely on theism, and so based upon the weight of that, I still think I'm perfectly rational and justified in retaining my position. And so I I, with that in mind, I think that that there is a a relatively narrow focus of this argument. It's just one piece of a much broader process of reflective equilibrium by which people would take in and want to assess all the evidence that they believe they have available to them. So I don't think anything gets settled today. I think this is just part of an ongoing, important conversation. In terms of theism, theism. So to to kind of pick up what Alex was saying about some of our assumptions about who God is and that, so I think it seems to me that on this argument, there's an assumption uh, that God is omnipotent, which we understand to be able to actualize any logically possible state of affairs or something like that. God is presumably omniscient so that God knows every actual state of affairs now, so it's not like some evil or suffering in the world has escaped God's notice and that's why it's occurring. And then God is also omnibenevolent or perfectly good that in a way that we would reasonably recognize so that to put it in sort of Judeo-Christian terms, God desires the shalom of every creature of every sentient being or the wellness of every sentient being to the extent that that's possible. And so the the fact that we see this evil in the world or suffering, of course, as we can put it either way, uh, I think that's a problem. I recognize it. If, if you begin with those definitions, I would say, however, uh, it is important to recognize at the outset that there are certainly many different understandings of theism and even of Christian theism. So there are understandings of Christian theism that deny this sense of God's omniscience. They deny, for example, that God can know the actions uh, can know facts about the future contingent actions of libertarian free creatures. Uh, open theism would be an example of that. And so open theists have somewhat of a different understanding where they can have a different resource in terms of their understanding of who God is. Uh, Then you have process theists and some process theists are Christian theists started with Alfred North Whitehead, but people like Charles Hartshorne sort of introduced process theism to the Christian tradition and process theism denies God's omnipotence in this classic sense. And so God is actually limited in God's ability to prevent evils in the world. And Thomas J. Urd is an example of a well-known Christian theologian who's actively defending a process understanding of God. Uh, and then you have even Christian theists who appear to deny, God, deny God's perfect goodness. So an example is Mark Roncase. He's a Christian biblical scholar. He wrote a book called Raw Revelation, uh, not Ra-Ra, but more like R-A-W, uh, talking about the sort of morally problematic dimensions of Scripture, the Bible, And part of his explanation is that God is morally imperfect and is sort of developing in his own understanding. Now I've got uh, disagreements with all of those theologies. So I do wanna align with sort of the classic omni-attributes that I think do undergird this argument, but I also wanna concede at the outset that even if a person did believe the weight of this argument was sufficiently strong to require some sort of revision in their belief, it wouldn't entail the abandonment of theism it could very well entail the revision of their understanding of theism. So you revise some, uh, to some degree your understanding of God's omniscience, his omnipotence, or your understanding of his perfect goodness, and still be a theist, having reconciled yourself to this distribution of evil in the world. So uh, I, I have a lot more to say for sure, but I just maybe I'll stop at that point and just ask if Alex has anything in reply. Um,
2: well, that was a nice... Uh... Explanation of yeah, and I I mean I can I agree that the this is one piece of evidence that we're considering in isolation from the total data that we could be considering. But obviously, space permitting, we can't we can't consider everything all at the same time. So we're just considering this piece of evidence on its own. So it's like picking up one item from a crime scene and just having a conversation about that and not looking at the rest of the crime scene and just working out whether that would be expected on different hypotheses or whatever. Um and yeah, it's not like um the argument's so modest in a way that it, it's sort of useless as a counter-apologetic. It's not gonna change anyone's mind or anything, right? That's not my goal. Um, but modest premises are easier to defend. I think that's the goal really, is it it's it sort of seems like something that's more reasonable. I mean, people generally take it that these really ambitious logical problems of evil are just too ambitious and it's not feasible to to maintain them these days in, in the literature, it's more sort of interest in weaker arguments a bit like this um and it's interesting as well yeah you could you could bite the bullet and just say okay that evidence does point in this direction as you said and um but still be a theist so that's all all that's good and i agree with that so i guess i'm curious to though now what what move you want to make i feel like i've you know king's pawn
0: to d4 now what do you do now at this stage I like, I like the, the ongoing chess theme. I just watched <laughs> Queen's Gambit on Netflix, great show, um, although I don't have a mind for chess myself. Well, let, let me respond like this and see what you think of this. So um, all things being equal, you would expect a good driver to ensure that every child in the car wears a seatbelt. And I think that that's... And, and so the hypothesis then would be this, to draw an analogy with your argument, that If the driver is a good driver, then we should expect children to wear seatbelts. If the driver is not a good driver, all things being equal, we would expect the children not to wear seatbelts or that that would count as evidence that the driver is not a good driver. But uh, what if we say uh, the bigger story is that we believe the driver is piloting a school bus and uh, in the school bus, uh, it's not advisable for children to wear seatbelts for various reasons. In that case, the fact that children don't wear seatbelts does not count against the driver being a good driver because we believe the driver is piloting a school bus. And so if we come then to theism, a part of the bigger story, I think for many theists, certainly for many Christian theists, is is that we we do need to to understand a little bit broader range of our data so that we have an accurate read on this information. And so if the bigger part of the data is, for example, that God did not create human beings uh, to the end to be as happy as they can in this life but perhaps rather to be formed into morally mature creatures and that suffering is pretty typically part of what it is to develop as morally mature form creatures develop second order virtues such as courage and altruism and kindness and that may very well involve some degree of suffering in that then when we look out at the world based upon that set of assumptions and in fact the ev- the evil may not count against the existence of god in fact some degree of the distribution and intensity of evil that we find may be perfectly consistent with this sort of soul making assumption or greater goods assumption. Okay. So, all right. So two things then it feels like I want to say at
2: that point. So first of all, let's just be clear that when you add specificity to the hypothesis in the first place, what that does, is it might make the evidence more expected on that hypothesis, but what it does is it drives down the intrinsic probability of the hypothesis itself. Um, So for instance, um, you could say, um, what's a good... So it might be like, um, we find a crime, uh, we find like the, I don't know, murder weapon hammer or whatever covered in blood. um, And it's got like, I don't know, Joey's fingerprints on it, right? Um, And obviously, it's quite like the hypothesis that Joey was the murderer is obviously substantially more likely, um, given that evidence. Um, Or at least the probability of the evidence, given the hypothesis, is likely, let's say, to put it in the same frame as the argument. But if we build into the hypothesis that Joey's got an identical hand twin, right? Um, So I'm referencing that Friends episode where showing me someone with an identical hand. So when i imagine imagining someone else out there with exactly identical fingerprints. Um, obviously that hypothesis does explain the evidence. Now, now it sort of lowers the probability of the guilt hypothesis. Um, but it's sort of adding complexity to the hypothesis itself. It makes, the hypothesis itself is now very, very unlikely. So. Um, it doesn't so much help that. And I'm not necessarily clear that that's what you're doing at this stage, but let's just be clear that you can sharpen up a hypothesis as much as you like, make it very, very unlikely and expand. You know, it's going to definitely explain the evidence there, but then the problem will be the overall kind of balance of probabilities isn't getting any better because you're just making the initial um, hypothesis intrinsically unlikely. Um, so there's this kind of worry about that. And very quickly, it's just, I guess even if we sort of move away from that and just think about, well, at best, you're only going to be able to plausibly explain sufferings that seem to do any work in driving moral virtues or whatever. So sufferings of like, uh, you know, a dying blue whale on the bottom of the ocean, no possibility for anybody to learn or, do anything to save them or become better or whatever. It's just pointlessly suffering out of the way from any moral agent that could do anything about it or learn, or grow, or whatever. So even, you know, even if we conceded it, it still seems like it leaves arguably most suffering unexplained. Right.
0: Okay. So uh, on the, on the first one, yeah, that that's fine. I, what, what I'm trying to do with, with my rebuttal uh is to say that, that the way that you set the table is sort of we we come to this evidence and we just want to just present it, analyze it in terms of this one simple hypothesis. And then if you add on more information, as you said, it reduces the intrinsic overall probability. Fair enough. My point is that I come to the evidence already as a theist, not as one seeking just to construct some particular hypothesis. And what I want to say is now as a theist, based upon what I believe to be true about the world, does this evidence provide a defeater, a reason to question my understanding of the world? So um, I'm not coming to that understanding of the world simply as a hypothesis based upon this evidence. What I want to what I, I want to consider is whether this evidence provides a defeater to my belief. And I think if you say understanding it in terms of the school bus analogy, somebody who already believes the driver is piloting a school bus, then in fact this is not necessarily something you would be surprised to find this kind of this evil and suffering in the world because a theist who has that belief as part of their background belief this would be something they would expect it would be a, a world that would bring about moral maturation in creatures now uh, you you then mentioned the problem of natural evil that's another huge issue of course uh, so suffering and evil in nature that is independent of moral agency and there there are various theodicies so a theodicy, for those who are not familiar, we haven't introduced that term yet, is this idea of justifying God's actions. It comes from actually John Milton uh, in his poem, Paradise Lost. So he's, this idea of developing an explanation to explain why God allows evil. There are various theodicies that are focused on natural evil, and in particular, animal suffering. Uh, so things like animal resurrection. Um, so Trent Doherty, for example, has argued about that. Uh, different views, Michael Murray's argued about um a particular understanding that animal may suffer but not be aware second-order awareness of that suffering, and that may change the nature of of their understanding what they suffer. And then other there are different soul-making arguments as well that one could make. I've actually got a one and a half hour exchange with uh, Skydive Phil, an atheist, mm-hmm. on this very topic. So, for those interested, uh, we could certainly look there. But I do agree with you, Alex, that that a, a Christian or a theist definitely has to consider the amount. Of suffering in the world and in, in nature. And uh, if you consider, for example, I mean, Charles Darwin, of course, famously talked about ichneumonidae, which was this, this uh, wasp that lays its eggs inside a caterpillar and then it freezes them and then the eggs hatch and they slowly eat their way out of the caterpillar, much like in the film Alien or something. Um, those are very disturbing facts about nature. Another one is the bat bug. So, the bat bug procreates by way of traumatic insemination, where the male bat bug impales the female through her abdomen with his horn like phallus. Uh, I mean, this is like all things being equal. This is not what you would expect. I mean, I'm willing to, to concede that in nature. So I think theists often like when they argue uh, arguments from design and so on, that they, mm. they're very much in danger of the confirmation bias, right? they only look for the beauty and design as they see it in nature and not for mm. the, apparent disvalue of suffering and so on. So I I, I recognize that's a a bigger issue. There are theodicies that certainly wrestle with that, but we should not be dismissive of those arguments. Now, you also said something. um, uh, Well, let me let me just turn it back to you there and then then we can go back further. I'll I'll talk later. Well, yeah. okay.
2: so I mean, it's interesting that the notion of like your kind of to me, my thought about this idea of, well, maybe animals become resurrected or whatever, well, various things seem implausible and kind of strange about that type of hypothesis. Just picking one, because you referenced a bunch of different ideas, just to pick one that stood out to me when you run through those. Um, again, that's, that type of approach feels like what it's going to suffer from the fact that that's an intrinsically very unlikely hypothesis. I mean, unless there's any reason to think that in the first place, just saying, well, gee, maybe animals are resurrected or something. Um, If there's no reason to think that's true, um, and that seems intrinsically very unlikely on its face, then that doesn't do anything to increase the probability ratio we were looking at in the first place, right? At least it's not clear why I should think that that's moved the dial at all. Um, Just like if I said, well, maybe Joey's got an identical hand twin. Like it's, Maybe he does, and if he did, he wouldn't be guilty, or at least if he did, the evidence wouldn't be tilting in his favor. But unless there's any reason to think that he does, um, everything else being equal, there's these fingerprints on the murder weapon and you know, speculating idly about what might be the case shouldn't really change my assessment of the probability there. Um, so some of those things do seem a bit reachy to me for that reason. I mean, do you see where I'm coming from there? Like, Unless there's some independent reason to, su- to suppose that type of hypothesis is true, it's not going make any difference to this type of argument, it seems
0: to me. So, yeah, the, the thing is that, that um, if the argument is directed at a, at a person who doesn't accept theism or atheism, or sorry, theism or Christianity, then, then it will have resonance with them because they don't consider as part of their background belief this broader set of beliefs that I've been talking about. But if you want to present a defeater that's going to have purchase with a theist or Christian who already accepts this and has a different plausibility structure background set of beliefs than you do, I, I concede. I mean, all things being equal, you just say if you're not a theist or a Christian, you don't believe in such a thing as resurrection or God, then uh, to talk about the resurrection of animals does sound kind of ridiculous. But if you no, begin no, by so already believing that. resurrection, it sounds much more plausible. It's not so much that it's it, it's not so. Much, I mean, I, I
2: accept obviously. If I was to say, "Well, oh, there's no such thing as resurrection," it, it just feels like um, I'm just. Refusing to to see things from your point of view—that would be kind of silly. It just seems that, like, even from your point of view, that what I understand the Christian story to some extent, and you know, man is made or in God's image, not like bees and stuff like that. And what there's no stories about like heaven being filled with you know the increasing trillions and trillions of ants and stuff that have existed. Like, I would. It just feels like it it doesn't exist at any point in the Christian tradition until somebody starts focusing on the problem of animal suffering. And then someone goes, well, I don't know, maybe, and then just makes up a hypothesis, right? So I just think from your tradition, it comes out of nowhere. And so you don't have any reason to think that it's true unless there's some a priori argument or bit of tradition I don't know, right? just feels like it fucked out of thin air.
0: Well, I did write a book on heaven, in fact, called What on Earth Do We Know About Heaven? And I do make the argument that uh, like the way that some Christians talk about the afterlife in terms of this ethereal heaven is really not a Judeo-Christian perspective historically. The the New Testament, based upon the Hebrew scriptures, does in fact talk about a new heaven and new earth, which I think is properly understood to be a resurrection of creation, because Paul himself talks about the resurrection of Jesus as the first fruits of creation. He talks in Romans 8 about creation groaning, longing for the sons of God to be revealed, so it too can be released from its own suffering which was brought about through this narrative of the fallen alienation from God. Uh, and then you have, for example, in Isaiah, giving all these very earthy images of Shalom coming to creation in this new heaven and new earth, you know, the lion lying down with the lamb kind of images. So I actually think that that this is well placed within the Judeo-Christian tradition. And to the degree that people haven't tuned into it, they've been impacted by more platonic understandings of the afterlife.
2: Hmm. Based that still feels kind of reachy to me. I mean, there's like a couple of passages, they say some vague stuff, you could kind of interpret like this. I mean, at best, I'm thinking, okay, there's a tiny bit of evidential backing to that now. There's not very much, though, is it? So it's still an unlikely hypothesis, or, you know, considering... It's not like you've got any direct passages where they say, dogs are going to be resurrected, so don't worry about your pet dog, he'll be with you in heaven. If it says something like that, i go, okay, that's part of the tr- Christian tradition. It just doesn't say anything like that, does it? So you have to interpret some text in a way that's, you know, maybe, but maybe not what it actually means. So anyway, we don't have to spend the whole time talking about animal yeah. suffering, but just yeah. just seems to me that, the, and this is, strikes me as um, almost a universal feature to this type of reply. And it's not just that's why I just pick one and talk about that, and it's it's helpful to illustrate it because you know, just packing in more information into the hypothesis, unless there's good independent reason to think that that's already true, it's not going to really do. Well, it seems to me that it doesn't really help um, get you anywhere. Um, so
0: I take it. So
2: you let's
0: go back. can I give you an analogy with, to kind of turn it mm-hmm. back? Uh, and then I'd like to definitely talk about, you know, sort of skeptical theist maybe kind of responses as well, but okay. let me just try this out, uh, flipping it back in terms of naturalism. So there are a lot of theists who say, well, if there is no God, then you would not expect there to be such things as moral objective, moral value. An obligation in the world Uh, and some atheists concede that but others say well actually for example Er eric wheelenberg right i mean he could say well but i'm a moral platonist and a naturalist i believe those two things are can be reconciled and if if that's my framework then the fact that you want to talk about a sort of materialistic understanding and say uh the existence of objective moral value is very implausible and, or impossible perhaps in a materialist or maybe a uh, supervenient understanding of non-natural uh properties uh well then yeah that becomes problematic but if you start off that platonism is part of the package then you're not going to be as deterred at all by the existence in fact you'd expect the existence of objective moral value and it seems to me that that so it's not going to that kind of argument against objective moral value is not going to have purchase against a non-theist moral Platonist. And I'm just making the same point in Mm. reverse. Yeah.
2: Okay. So, I mean, this, that's right. So if we pack in more information into the um, hypothesis of indifference and turn it into naturalism, which it's, it's not, I mean, it's deliberately wider than that. Um, Then sure, you can make something that's, that's awkward on for explaining, well, for explaining a different type of, phenomena i right? we're talking about the existence of moral values rather than suffering. Um, I think actually if we were to specify the hypothesis to be naturalism, suffering becomes even more expected, I guess. And I'm not sure what the existence of platonic objects does to the expectation value of suffering, probably nothing actually. Uh, so forget that. But um, no, look, I quite agree with you. Um, but the purpose of the argument isn't to show that naturalism is true. It's simply to show that um, this broad umbrella term of indifference is more likely than theism, and that includes naturalism, but it also includes some other hypotheses too. I mean, there may as well be ghosts and and all sorts as well, right? There can can be anything on indifference, just so much, just so long as it's not um, that reality is the product of a, an intelligence. That's basically all that it says. Um, and if that's more likely than theism, then the argument does does its job. Um, but you're quite right that you know if there are arguments that are similar looking. I mean, the fine tuning argument is basically the closest parallel to this, it seems to me, where it's showing you that a theist um, explanation of the universe is more likely than, than an indifferent one. Um, okay
0: but let me, but so I'm, I'm not sure analogy. that, I'm not sure that um, my point came through. Uh, okay, let me just sure. briefly kind of re, repackage it. So let me say the equivalent of the indifference thesis here mm-hmm. is the objective moral values thesis. And so then the the theist argues, objective moral values are more expected on theism than on atheism. And I mean, many atheists have conceded with that, so J.L. Mackey famously, as an example. But uh, Mm. there are, in fact, some atheists who are moral Platonists, who said, well, wait a minute, it depends what kind of atheism you're talking about. If I'm an atheistic moral Platonist, then it's not surprising at all that there would be objective moral facts in fact, they're part of the package for me. And I'm arguing in reverse, that the uh, indifference doesn't work for a Christian theist who believes that the driver is, in fact, driving a school bus. That's actually to be expected, some degree of evil and suffering in the world. So that in itself does not, in fact, count in the same way that it would count to a theist who didn't have that as part of their package of belief.
2: Um Well, I might be uh, quite—I might be being slow here—but on the hypothesis, so you've got your standard, like, hypothesis of indifference or atheism or whatever. Um, And if we if we bolt onto that the claim that there are moral values in the Platonistic sense, then it doesn't just raise the probability that there are moral values; it entails it, right? I mean, it is—we just bolted on the conclusion. So obviously it entails that. So it doesn't feel quite the same. What you would be bolting on is not um, that there is, you know, God exists and suffering exists. Obviously that would make the expectation value that there would be suffering on that hypothesis would be one, because it would entail it. But you didn't bolt the same. You didn't bolt the conclusion onto the hypothesis. You bolted on um, that what God is uh, wants people to have experiences that develop their souls or something. I mean, I, we were not clear exactly what you were bolting on, but. You know, you were saying you can increase the hypothesis in some way like that, but it just seems to me it's not quite the same as the moral value one. I mean, you'd have to say something, you know, atheism plus something that makes moral values existing more likely than atheism on its own, but it can't just be the statement that moral values exist. Otherwise, it just it's not analogous, right? So I, so I think so. We have uh, atheism and.
0: Uh, an atheist who's also moral Platonist. We have yeah, but a, then
2: doesn't that that's someone who just says atheism plus moral values exist as Platonic
0: entities. Yeah, and, and so they're saying that your your theist argument against me just doesn't apply to me because it only would apply to atheists who who don't accept moral Platonism. Like maybe they're they could be agnostic, for example, about that. And so if you have a theist who's sort of agnostic about the question, well, uh, about a you know that that maybe. I, ex- I believe part of my package of belief is the greater goods moral maturation of creatures well well then then it would work for that person because they're they're not settled either way perhaps they don't they don't have any skin in the game as it were yet but if you want to present a defeater to a christian who's already committed to the greater goods thesis just as you want to present an argument um to the atheist who's a moral platonist you can't go with with objective moral facts in that way that's well we may, we may have a standoff here but uh, I'm not sure, and maybe my point
2: didn't come through, but um, if you, so let's just, what's your expectation value of S, some fact of suffering, on the hypothesis of just bare theism, right? And and let's say it's like kind of middling to low or something, right? And then you say, well, yeah, but now I'm bolting onto the theism hypothesis, this idea about like soul making, and he wants us to have these challenges that make us better people or whatever. Now, that enriched theism hypothesis. Sure, suffering is more expected now than it was before you added in that extra bit of detail. Completely concede that. Yeah, sure, absolutely. Yeah. But the what you did to the, so now we've got atheism. So, what's the, the hypothesis of uh, M, let's call it, that moral values exist? given atheism, kind of like middling or whatever, don't know, doesn't really say anything about that. Maybe it's low, something like that. And then you say, well, we'll bolt on to atheism, the claim that moral values exist, right? And that's the Platonist claim, effectively. Now, what, what's my expectation value of there be of M? Well, it's one, right? It hasn't just increased to some extent. It's yep. shot all the way from middling to one. So th- in that respect, they're not analogous because you didn't just bolt on the claim you know the, the fierce hypothesis and the claim suffering exists. That would be what you would have to do to make the two things analogous to each other. And that, That's all I was saying. Yeah. So, yeah. so
0: I, I'm, I'm again, I, 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 we are, I think, to some degree at least, talking past one another. I am. Okay. I, I'm recognizing your argument works if, if for that for the modest aim for which you purposed it, with respect to the bare theism you're engaging with. I'm just saying that it has limited value, just as the the uh, atheist arguing against atheism simplicator based upon the existence of objective moral facts would have limited value to an atheist who already believes that objective moral facts vis-a-vis Platonism are part of their broader set of beliefs. It's not a feeder to that broader set. So
2: It would have absolutely no no impact at all on that person because it's entailed by their beliefs
0: already that 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 exists. Yeah, okay, fine, fair enough. Um, Okay, so let me... uh, let's maybe talk about skeptical theism. So Mm -hmm. um, I'm just going to say at the outset, uh, well, so for those who aren't familiar with the term that refers to this idea that, in fact, the fact that that we should not be surprised that we cannot explain the amount and distribution of evil in the world uh, with respect to the purposes of this God so defined, because we shouldn't be able to Believe that we have cognitive access to God's reasons, even if He does have such reasons. So the fact that we don't have access to such reasons is not evidence that he lacks such reasons or that such a being doesn't exist. Um, the first thing I would just want to say is um, I like the term cognitive closure much better than skeptical theism. Uh, I think that's a clearer term, skeptical theism. For one thing, skeptical theism is a term leads, I think, to a misbegotten objection, which is very common in the literature. That if you reject or that if you accept some degree of limited cognitive access to God's reasons, that somehow entails a sort of global skepticism uh, about God's reasons. And that has never been the claim of skeptical theists, certainly not of me. So I prefer to talk about cognitive closure, which is just talk about our limited access to the full range of God's reasons for allowing evil. Uh, so what do, you, what do you think about, about that response? Yeah. Um.
2: <clears throat> So if you if the response comes down to something like saying, well, God might just have a reason that we don't know about for allowing. So let's say take some horrible Holocaust or um, you know sack of Baghdad by um, the Mongols or some you know some horrible stuff like that, and you just go, how could how could a loving God let that happen? He could have intervened, made made people feel a little bit more remorseful and less and less. Um, genocidal or whatever and why didn't he do that and then the response is well you know hard to imagine why he would do that but maybe he's got some reason and we shouldn't you know th- and we shouldn't expect to know um, that he's got a reason if, if he has one so um it's always a kind of appeal to that maybe something is out there um part of me thinks well i say joey's fingerprints are on the murder weapon um <laughs> And you say, yeah, well, I mean, maybe there's an identical hand twin out there and we shouldn't expect to know whether there's an identical hand twin out there or not. Um, so I'm just gonna shrug my shoulders at it. It just feels a bit like the move
0: seems a bit like that, right? I never watched Friends. I've got to cons- confess. <laughs> I'm I sure gonna... everybody
2: watching has seen that. Episode, but anyway, yeah, sorry.
0: I, I was busy watching Seinfeld back in the 90s. <laughs> but, okay. Uh, okay, so. I, I just think that that's a, a misleading analogy. Uh, I, I think that uh, here's, a, here's, a, here's a different one. Um, let's say Joey begins his first year of a five-year apprenticeship with some master in whatever field he wants to learn about. And the first afternoon, the master asks him to do X. And that doesn't make any sense to him. Uh, so for example a concrete illustration karate kid uh, uh, mr miyagi asks daniel to paint the fence he asks him to wax on wax off on the cars and daniel gets to precisely that point of joey in the first year of the five-year apprenticeship is this guy's uh, doesn't know what he's doing or he's using me he's not actually training me at all but in fact it shows that that uh, daniel is very presumptuous that mr miyagi knew precisely what he was doing because when he starts throwing punches Then Daniel starts blocking them, and he's like, where did this ability come from? And he realizes the whole time Mr. Miyagi was working at this meta level that he didn't even have cognitive access to. And how much more then for Joey, starting the first year of an extended five-year apprenticeship, he's not in a position to say whether the master, uh, that he's not doing what would actually be proper for the formation of Joey. And then how much more God, when we have an infinite being and finite creatures like us.
2: OK, cool. That, that's helpful. So um, I think that now I don't find that analogy quite right here because um, I don't think I'm a, the equivalent of an apprentice beginning to learn about a field that they don't know much about already, or at least even if I don't know a huge amount about moral reality or something, um, it does seem to me I don't need to know very much to know that, um, that well, let's see. So if I was to you know just walk past somebody suffering um, and I could do something about it and, and I don't do anything about it, then I just I, I feel, feel like I just take myself to know that that's wrong. I think you probably would as well, right? That it's basic moral facts like that, um, it, it, it is wrong to just willfully ignore someone else's suffering that you could easily do something else about. I mean, we can build in caveats to that, whatever. But there are straightforward senses where it's just obvious that, that somebody's doing something wrong. I don't I don't consider myself to be in a kind of moral scepticism, a uh, complete moral scepticism where I don't know anything about what's morally true or not. Um, and it just seems like it, a moment's reflection. You could come up with some example of something where, um, uh, so for instance, I don't know, somebody who's just being tortured to death, that sort of stuff happens throughout history, pointlessly, like witch trials or whatever, people get tortured to death in horrendous ways. Um, And then the thought there would be, well, look, first of all, um, can it be right to let that sort of thing happen? I just feel like very, very unlikely that I'm so mistaken about morality that it could be right for someone to just let that happen. And secondly you might say, well, there's some compensating good that comes from that, which God couldn't have got any other way apart from letting that person die. Um, Now I feel, and this is a sort of, I won't be able to do justice to this right now, but the thought would be there, something like that it presupposes an indecent ledger, right, where you're weighing, um, you know, that, that no concept that it's unfair and something sort of messed up about weighing somebody's, intense suffering against other goods so it's instrumental in bringing about something else right that that itself is a bad thing to do um, so for instance you know this obvious uh a thing against a radical utilitarianism where like you know homeless guy wanders into the er room and he just happens to have five uh organs that are needed for five different patients that are dying I mean, you can't just kill the guy, club him over the back of the head and cut him open, even if he would save five people's lives, because there's some things that, like, it's just wrong to do. Like, that's the kind of utilitarian, that's the deontological intuition there is that, like, even if it does boost utility and there's some consequences that would be good from doing it, it's just wrong to do certain things like that. And I think if you've got any inkling of intuition along those lines, you should find it very difficult to just accept that, well, gee, maybe there's some reason why god you know allows some little kid to be brutally tortured to death or whatever like it, nothing could how it wouldn't be good even if that something good instrumentally came from that that would still be a horrible thing for him to do it would be bad like from that little kid's point of view like you know it's it's just unconscionable to expect to, to think that that's just okay because and 300 years from now some good will be realized like, I, I just, I, I deny, I think I know enough about morality to know that, like, that's not good, uh, it seems to me. And you have to be some kind of radical consequentialist to just suppose that, you know, people can be sacrificed, you know, millions of <laughs> of years of animal sufferings and stuff just because it, like, brings about some future good or whatever. It just seems like a crazy consequentialist kind of conception here. Some things are just wrong, right? And it doesn't matter what the consequences are.
0: That's how I would look at it.
2: Do so, you have sympathy for that type of view? I would have thought you you
0: do. Yeah, but I'd, um, I'd like to have a more fulsome response in a moment. But I'd like to maybe push back on on one uh, point. So, are you saying that because it uh, you you gave initially I think a very strong statement that if you see some person suffering, uh, this, hold on a second, the sun's in my eye. <laughs> okay. So if you see a person suffering, uh, then you sort of have this moral obligation to prevent it or something. Um, yeah. But but then you sort of you you, you mentioned, well, uh, there could be further caveats. And you're right, there could be further caveats. So there I think we can both agree that there are instances where human beings can recognize that that we ought not prevent some certain suffering in our vicinity that we could prevent because of some greater good. Now, um, so I think we, we, we hopefully can agree that there are at least some instances of suffering that we can recognize we are in, even morally justified to allow. The next question is, well, then presumably God does as well. So then the question is, at what reason does your intuition kick in and say, but not this one. This one's somehow over the threshold for an infinite being. Uh, yeah,
2: okay, I see where objection objections going. And I feel like, I, I, obviously, I'm not going to give a cutoff point where it's like 15 units of pain yeah, and then it's yeah. not enough or whatever. But, like, I think it, it seems like it shouldn't be that controversial to say wherever the limit is, it surely it's below holocaust or something right like i don't have to set a cutoff point to know that it's got to be below there and yet that thing happened so it, it doesn't feel to me like
0: too difficult a, an objection to respond to there okay. maybe i've missed your point of your objection no 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 that yeah you're saying i don't know how i don't have to know when the sun went below the horizon to know the stars are out
2: yeah uh
0: let me let me give you a, an, an illustration concrete illustration uh for maybe some reflection so this came from uh March 2015 on 60 Minutes, I was watching it, uh, the story called Coming Home about soldiers returning from the battlefield. One particular soldier lost his leg to an IED in either Afghanistan or, or Iraq. And Scott Pelley, uh, so the interviewer was interviewing him. And I mean, it's, you hear his story. I mean, it's, you know, as you can imagine, it's pretty, pretty horrific to be in an explosion and then find out that your bottom part of your leg is missing. And then the rehab, right? And then the, the ongoing pain, the phantom limb syndrome, and all the other things. Scott Pelley asks him, having been through everything you've been through, would you do it again? And the soldier replies without missing a beat, in a heartbeat, it made me the man I am today. Now, the one thing I want to say is I want to be very careful about ever making claims about anyone else's suffering. But I do want to as as well recognize that people who have suffered but themselves can comment on their subsequent perspective on their own suffering, do have particular authority to do so. And it seems to me that like at the at first blush, it would, it would be, could there be any reason why I would ever be okay with a, my leg getting blown off with an IED? And I would say no. But then you have people like this who are testimonies to their own life subsequent to that traumatic experience, and they say yes. And it just suggests to me a general caution about our ability to reason in these kinds of situations okay
2: so <laughs> i want to issue a cautionary note on that tale too because um i think we have a tendency to rationalize our current situation post hoc and mm-hmm. make the you know it's it, this kind of um tendency to make the best out of the situation that we're in but i don't think that's particularly rational i think that's just kind of like a good thing for survival and happiness and whatnot that we do that but it. And it's probably best that we're not completely rational about our own evaluations of our own settings, right? Difficult to live every day with the true scale of your mediocrity or whatever, right? Better to have an inherent ability, a belief in your own abilities or whatever, right? Even if it's false, it's like nicer to have that. And I think that somebody who's gone through a traumatic experience like that might be part of their uh, way of getting back to sanity and normality again, to construct a narrative whereby that's the making of them. And it's, a good thing but i mean just to, just to make it clear if someone has his leg blown off he's not going to be going oh goody now i've gone experience you know got all this like suffering to live through and made me a better person then things a good thing and if if you were stood next to him and he got his leg blown off and you didn't you wouldn't think that you were the unlucky one because you don't get the chance to go through the moral uh progress that other person's going to go through you're the lucky one and and then you're trying to tell me that like there actually is an objective sense in which he's the lucky one and you're the unlucky one. I just, feels, I just think that's wrong. I think you've just confused somebody's post-hoc rationalisation about how they've managed to live through a trauma with and, and blown it out of all proportion, as if that's actually the, a stroke of good luck that that bad thing happened to them. And actually, objectively, it's a bad thing that happened to them and it's, it's just kind of nice that they've made the best of it and told themselves a story that helps them live. That seems much more plausible to me.
0: So I have two things. First of all, I agree it's a bad thing. Right? The the idea is not that these are in and of themselves good things. They're bad things allowed for a greater good, and so we do want to keep that distinction in mind. Uh, okay, sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. But the second thing is is um, I agree that that uh, uh, we our first person awareness of our own interior states is not infallible, right? And this he could be rationalizing his experience. But I also simply don't have access to his first-person perspective to know whether that is the case. And I do want to give a prima facie deference to, to how people interpret their own current state rather than to impose mine upon them, unless I have some overriding reason not to. Now, you you may believe you do, and, and that every time a person says that, then they're, they're wrong. Uh, it seems to me that I don't have that kind of confidence that I would defer to him recognizing that he could be wrong and I could be wrong as a result. But it seems to me that that I, I will grant that kind of recognition, that people can undergo great suffering uh, and look back at it subsequent to that suffering and realize that while the suffering itself is not a good thing, they are nonetheless thankful for that degree of suffering because it brought about some greater good they perhaps could not have acquired otherwise. Okay. So maybe uh, I had to stand off there. But.
2: Perhaps, um, but then I wonder if, you know, I guess people have a tendency to say, And and I won't go on too much of a rabbit hole about this, but I I do get a bit annoyed when people say things like, "Oh, you can't regret anything because that's the, you have to have everything exactly the way that it was, or it wouldn't be me, the very same person I am now, whatever. That um, kind of annoys me a little bit, but um, I'll try and put that to one side. Let's just consider your friend um, or the character from this um, anecdote who, like, sure, he might be saying, well, look, I wouldn't be me with all of the outlook and perspective and stuff I've got now, but I think if he would just sort of take him out of his body in it's kind of Christmas carol way and show him what his life might have been like had his leg not been blown off, and you just show him like 40 years of like having, you know, perfectly normal life and, you know, a beautiful wife, loving kids, big house every day, going to work at a job he enjoys and whatever, and just saying saying to him, you know, you can swap now, I'll use my magical powers and you can pick which life you'd prefer to, to live. I mean, it does seem a bit strange to think that he would pick the leg being blown off one, even though he learned a moral lesson out of it. It just seems like it's obvious. So what I'm saying is that you're saying something bad happened to him, but a compensating good happened, and that offsets the badness. But it seems to me that even still, it doesn't offset it enough. Right? <laughs> that certainly doesn't uh, overbalance it and to, to such an extent that it's on balance a good thing. right? On balance, it's much better for that to have not happened and for him to just live what is just a pretty normal life it would have been much more enjoyable um and I'm just not sure I see why the moral growth I guess I I guess what this comes down to is I just I'm not sure in my evaluation of things that moral growth is more important or justifying um I'm not sure that on the weighing scales of kind of evaluation that it can really balance out like massive intense suffering you know like someone being tortured to death well, that's good because they'll grow up or someone being tortured for years somehow in any way being uh, compensated for by them going becoming a wiser person at the end of it i just see it just feels wrong maybe i'm just finding it difficult to as i said not prepared for this uh possibly anywhere nearly as well as you because um you do this more for a living than i do but um i just see i'm struggling to explain this so um do you see where i'm coming from like i just i can't see weighing those
1: two things up like that. Uh, Randall, I'll give you a chance to respond. I just want to let you both know that maybe in a few minutes, we'll go into Q&A. So maybe like five Thank or you. so minutes. Thanks so much.
0: Excellent. I, I mean, look, we're, we're both dealing, everybody here is dealing with intuitions, right? And, mm-hmm. and That's an inevitable part that Eleanor Stump has a nice statement in one of her essays about issues like this, that we really, we're really we really formed by paradigm instances of of experience and reflection that really then inform just the way the world seems to us and it seems to me that that people will find themselves on a full range on the scale as to what seems plausible for them that God could allow Uh, at one extreme case someone may think I can't even imagine God allowing a bad headache another extreme case people could say you know I I, even the holocaust I can understand I mean I can't understand by any means all the reasons God could allow but that seems to me that he could have reasons to allow that I don't have access to and it seems to me that people can reasonably stop at various points on that continuum and be reasonable because they're just informed by their own t- intuitions and the way things seem to them. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple of things I want to respond to specifically is, so you sort of talked about the reference, the Chris, a Christmas carol and this guy having uh, the soldier, having a life, another life shown to him and things could have been this way. Would you choose that instead? I'll first of all say that the best version of the Christmas carol is Robert Zemeckis' underrated 2009 animated version with Jim Carrey. It's a great version. Uh, But I think that this is somewhat of, to me, a misleading because it it has a rather atomistic picture of of it. My claim is not simply that uh, this individual, uh, that, that the reasons why God would allow his suffering is so that it could make him the man he is today. There could be incalculable, incalculable range of reasons that God could have that touch upon the lives of all sorts of different people. And so as he would be looking at these various scenarios of how his life could ring out to the impact of his life on all these other lives as well. Mm. And I think maybe if he had all that information, yeah, then he would say, you know what, God is not simply in the, the t- purpose with the end of creating individual atoms, individual persons, but God is in the purpose of creating whole worlds. Uh, and my place in this world, including the suffering that I have endured, is something that I would choose and this, the impact it had collectively on this world over a world in which didn't have that suffering and which the didn't have the greater goods that went with that suffering. If I yeah, can just... Okay. okay, go ahead.
2: Well, just very quickly, yeah. I think that's probably, you know, of course, from God's point of view, who knows, right? But from our point of view, we've no reason to expect that, um, that any... Of these kind of butterfly effects uh, that your life could have, uh, a are, are, are different—is any reason to think that someone having his leg blown off makes a better, bigger impact in the overall good sense than the guy who doesn't have his leg blown off? We should be indifferent about what the effects are there, and the, the question is just what what your expectation is on that type of evil or suffering or whatever. Like and you could say, well, maybe God you know fits into this one plan and it couldn't work unless this guy had his leg blown off. That's true, maybe, but unless you've got a reason for thinking that that's actually true, it's just adding complexity to the hypothesis and lowers the intrinsic probability, and it doesn't help, um, right? I mean, but in, you know, you don't have any reason to think that having your leg blown off makes any difference to your impact on the world. All we can say is that. It gave him a sense of himself. It definitely did that. It had that, and it's plausible to think that if he didn't have his leg blown off and had a comfortable life, uh, he wouldn't have that kind of fortified moral character that he developed through going through all that pain and suffering. I've got reason to think that there's that type of difference there. And and all of the other differences are just complete speculation whether it has any other impact at all. So I think the only things we can actually see clearly, it just seems obvious that... um, it's much greater overall good if he doesn't have his leg blown off, right? Just that, that seems simple and obvious. I don't, I'm not sure what well, your intuition is. But.
0: I mean, my my dad passed away from Alzheimer's two years ago, and it's a very nasty disease and a very nasty decline. And my brother was a high school teacher for 25 years. And journeying through the, the experience of my dad's own decline in Alzheimer's, um, that convinced my brother to start a new career as a healthcare aide. And so he now works with dementia patients as a result of that. And I believe that my brother's own moral formation is one small bit of the story of my father's cognitive decline, that my father's cognitive decline, some of the explanation for it is the moral formational impact it had upon my brother, upon myself, upon my mother and upon countless other people. So it does seem to me that, that, um, when we look at the suffering in our own lives and really reflect on some of the ways that that suffering has had positive impacts on ourselves and others then it can become it can come to raise the intrinsic probability of this hypothesis well i would
2: i would buy that more if i thought that there was that people were unlikely to do things like start working as carers unless they had that type of experience but i think actually on the whole most people take jobs as carers or nurses or whatever caregivers for completely mundane reasons. They don't have to go through suffering to 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 do that. It's, it's a fine profession, right? There's nothing yeah. wrong with that whatsoever. You don't need to have a have a experience like that to, to do that. And so um, you know, everything that it just doesn't increase my thinking that, oh good, uh, the good thing about people suffering with Alzheimer's is that it makes loads of people go into caring i mean there's no actual correlation there and there's no reason to think that that would go down if the if that type of suffering was diminished i think there'd be just as many
0: carers really so you
2: know
0: yeah okay i know james wants to get in so i'll just give one quick repost and then sure and i will shut up so. so i i will just say that that uh yes there are many reasons why people take on that profession in terms of the reasons that might have compelled my brother i don't think either one of us has access to that but i do think uh, that the fact that my dad's suffering was this catalyst for my brother taking on this new career, his vocation, is a part of the story as to why my dad suffered. And it does begin to help me make sense of it. Okay, I'll turn it over to James.
1: Well, thank you very much, gentlemen. It's been a true pleasure to get to listen to this. We have got a lot of positive feedback in the chat. And also, yeah, not only in terms of the intellectual rigor, but also just the congeniality. You guys are both very pleasant. And so this has been an awesome event. And while we have, stay tuned folks, we have questions we're going to get into and also want to mention, I hate putting you on the spot, Alex, but I I did because I I knew that Randall had books and I found Alex that you also have at least one book and forgive me for putting you on the spot, but I, but someone asked in the chat, that's why I bring this up. But I, I, one thing I want to mention folks is that both of our guests have books. And so if you look for them, I know that Dr. Randall, uh, My guess is that people can find your books at your uh, website, which is linked in the description. And then Mm -hmm. Alex, I had seen yours is on, I just found on Amazon. And I want to encourage you folks that sometimes people ask me, does my mind change as a result of these debates? And yeah, to some extent, you know, it it like moves in degrees, right? My positions on different arguments, but I always tell people, though I think the channel is, I, I hope it's a value and I learn new things here. I would highly encourage you folks today we have two scholars on. Reading scholarly work is, I think, it's going to kind of help make your own thinking more rigorous, help challenge your own ideas. And so you can read both of our guests today and you can kind of read at kind of these like higher levels than kind of the, kind of, I'm not slamming it. I I think that there's still value in some of these other secondary sources where they kind of pre-digest it for you. But I would encourage you folks, I, I oftentimes say though that the debates don't influence me too much. Uh, they, they do some, but at the same time, reading, because having gotten a master's in philosophy, like having read a lot of the scholarly, wo- scholarly works, that's kind of more of my foundation is those kind of like scholarly level arguments and readings. And so want to encourage you folks to check out both of our guests' links so you can read or hear more from both of them. And so with that... We are very excited to jump into these questions. We want to say thank you so much. This first one coming in from Help Me says, Alex, go get them, Tiger. <laughs> Is that an inside <laughs> joke. I don't know. Is that, do people usually say that? Is that a common thing in Britain, in, in England?
2: Um, not particularly. I mean, I've heard it as a <laughs> phrase before. <but laughs> I
1: was just wondering. I, I do. It's always fun to learn. And so. Uh, but yes, uh, do you know who helped Me is? Maybe they're just a fan, though. But Red Face Gaming, thank you for your Super Chat. And by the way, folks, I don't know if I had uh, mentioned it. I-, I know I mentioned it, but not recently. 100% of Super Chats today are going to the Gary Sinise Foundation, which is linked in the description, along with a link to its charity watchdog evaluation. And so thank you guys so much for those. Red Face Gaming says... Uh, Thanks to our debaters and James, love this channel. Thanks so much, Redface Gaming. That's seriously encouraging. And Mohammed Farouk, thank you for your super sticker support. I'm surprised. It was people, I think, were like totally Zoom, uh, kind of like focused. We don't have too many questions. We have, let's see, Ralph Ellis says Does Dr. Rouser understand that his position seems to violate Occam's razor in. in a su- superfluous extraneous way that in the end doesn't support his position
0: so occam's razor do not multiply entities beyond necessity a simpler explanation is the preferred one uh, but here i think that this does kind of get back to one of our of our standoffs perhaps or just dis- disagreements uh so i i did concede that alex's argument works in terms of um Uh, first of all, it's modest uh, goal. And if you just have just bare theism in terms of these three omni attributes, but if part of your belief system includes this broader spectrum about soul making, et cetera, in the world, uh, then in terms of a defeater, this does not really provide a defeater to that because it's like the school bus analogy. You do expect it. If, If I was adding these additional hypotheses in to just explain the existence of evil, then it, it falls to Occam's razor. You don't need it, but I'm not adding this to explain the existence of evil. I'm just, this is already part of my background belief. And I'm saying, given this background belief, it, it, I don't think it's a, a particularly strong objection.
2: Gotcha. I think just, very- um, just ask a question about that. I mean, is it, is it actually part of your background belief
0: that animals are resurrected? Is that actually part of your background beliefs? Uh, no, but, well, part of I don't have a conviction about that. Part of my background belief is that that there, well, I mean, I do to have a discussion about animal resurrection in my in my book on heaven. But part of my background belief is certainly the skeptical theist response mm-hmm. to animal suffering, and so an openness to these various hypotheses with respect to animals.
2: So it's like you can. Um where you actually do have commitment because presumably when sorry james i'll shut up in a second but where you do have a, a piece of background beliefs that's relevant then there'll be some um reason that you already hold that so there'll be some it does explanatory work or it's got some like argument and evidence or something that makes you and uh, so so it kind of pays for itself somehow that would be okay too but what if we just sort of um if, if i then bring up a different aspect and say well what about animal suffering and you don't actually have a belief about that um then you fall into the problem i was talking about before where you would just be adding complexity to the hypothesis but without um any intrinsic gain and in probability actually a loss in intrinsic probability and then it balances out and it doesn't actually help you so i think that you know it's okay if you had a, a background beliefs well-justified in a massive range of theodicies or whatever, and fight, you, you, you know, then we would be talking about what the justifications were. But um yeah, anyway, sorry, I'll shut
1: No worries. We can give you the last word, Randall, a short and pithy one, and then we'll jump into the next
0: one. I uh, know that that's that's fair enough. I uh, I think it it does come down to, are you kind of adding this in, or is this already part of your background belief? I, I'll just say I am. I mean, having read Doherty and thought about this myself, and having argued uh this idea of the resurrection of creation new heavens and new earth i'm very sympathetic with the view um so and i do hope i see my dogs again because they're they're nice dogs
1: (laughs) you bet thank you very much for your super chat from ian chen says no question just to say love modern day debate well thank you ian for your support that means a lot it really does general balzac thank you for your super chat support appreciate it i didn't see a question attached if you want to add one let me know in a normal chat, and I'm happy to read it as a super chat. Otherwise, thanks for your support toward the charity. And Lab Lover Chris, thanks for your super chat. Said, so glad, super chats. Uh, thanks so much. Uh, they said, so glad that they're going to charity, and our pleasure. And thank you to the debaters for helping make this possible. The debaters are the lifeblood of the channel, folks, so we appreciate them so much. And one quick reminder, I I, I think that this is something I could improve on, folks, is we want to – I. I ought to communicate this as often as possible that we always want to encourage you to attack the arguments and uh, rather than the person as sometimes I know it gets heated heated it's inevitable as a debate channel that it may get heated sometimes but uh, and you know we don't freak out about it being heated but we do want to ask you to nonetheless focus back onto the arguments Zach Brannigan thank you for your super chat said for both isn't it possible to reverse any justification for a perfectly good god be a justification or i'm sorry let me read that again because I, I butchered it a bit say they, they said for for both speakers isn't it possible to reverse any justification for a perfectly good god to be a justification for a perfect perfectly evil god
0: you
2: want to say something
0: about that uh, so th- i'm sure stephen law likes this question <laughs> so there's kind of the evil god argument i mean i would say that um uh the experience, uh, our experience of the world is consistent with any range of hypotheses, including the hypothesis that there's this maximally malevolent being that's just toying with us is going to subject us to an eternity of suffering. But um, that doesn't mean that I have any reason to find that to be a particularly plausible one, nor does Alex. So I'm not troubled by the fact that there could be in principle, some maximally malevolent being, I believe um, the God that I understand exists. So so I'm not, yeah, you know, I'm not concerned with that. Now I, I guess where you could kind of tie it more directly into this conversation is by arguing in terms of this skeptical theist response that yeah, but but God could have these reasons so unknown to us that in fact that which we now think to be good is evil and evil is good and God's just playing with us or something like that. Um I wouldn't find that compelling as an argument either. I touched upon some of those issues, but but yeah, I'll just leave it at that and turn it over to Alex.
2: Well, um, I think that there's a sort of asymmetry because because you might think, well, can't you just say all the evil in the world is... Uh, well, so just reverse my argument. So um, the probability of this suffering on, on the evil God hypothesis um, is quite high, right? Fair enough. Um, isn't it higher on the evil God hypothesis than on uh, the indifference hypothesis? Because if it is, then evil or suffering is actually evidence for the evil God over uh, indifference, right? So it's kind of an argument for theism in a way, an argument for like you know, bad theism or something like evil God theism. Um You might think that, but I'm actually kind of sympathetic to the thought that there's, there's not quite as much suffering as you would expect uh if there was an omnip- omnipotent God who, who wanted nothing more than that. Um, and actually, there's just about the right amount that you would expect if it was, um, there was no plan. So it seems to me that, you, that it's slightly higher on indifference than on the evil God hypothesis. It, it, there's, there's certainly more than you'd expect on a perfect being hypothesis, but not quite as much as you'd expect from per, imperfect or morally, what's the, what am I trying to say there, but e, perfectly evil God
0: hypothesis. Well, since we don't have a, tot- a ton of questions, I mean, if I can just offer a brief rejoinder mm-hmm. on behalf of the evil God. <laughs> so, so uh, of course, in psychology, we know about this concept of the contrast effect, which is where your your experience of a particular state is heightened by the contrast with another state. So, for example, uh, if you were outside for a while, it was really cold, you step into the house, it feels really warm because of the contrast with the outside. But if you've been in the house all day, it doesn't feel really warm. And so the evil God defender could say, yeah, but um, maybe that the the degree of good that we experience in the world is is actually just enough to heighten the contrast effect so that when we're subjected to an eternity of suffering collectively, it will be even greater suffering than if we'd been thrown into suffering from the beginning. Mm And by my point of raising that is not to defend the evil God hypothesis, but really just to suggest how limited we all are in kind of reasoning to any magisterial conclusion based upon the ratio of suffering and uh, happiness or joy in the world.
1: You got it. We, let me just double check that we have gotten all the questions. Want to say, we appreciate all of your questions, folks. And our guests are linked in the description. Highly encourage you folks to check them out. If you love philosophy and discussions like this one, oh, we do have a couple more questions. I would highly encourage you. And my guess is you probably love reading it as well or listening to other YouTube channels on it. I know I have linked Dr. Alex, Doctor Alex's uh, link, YouTube channel channel in the description, and then Dr. Randall Rouser's personal website in the description as well. Converse Contender, thank you for your question, says it doesn't seem right to judge God from human normative standards, like everything in existence is derivative from God on that model. Alex, what are your
2: thoughts? Um, They asked. Right, so I guess I'm not, well, okay, so what you could say is it's not you can't make any assessment about God at all um because it's common kind of ineffable and his standards are beyond our comprehension whatsoever um and that would be fine but then it's then it becomes a hypothesis that generates no expectation value in particular about anything um, and so it still feels like all I need is um, that uh, the sufferings more likely more than 50 percent say on um, indifference and it's just um, there's you can't say anything about what it, what that probability is on a complete ineffability kind of god hypothesis and it still seems to me like my argument probably would run anyway um, right like uh, if you can't say anything about the probability but I can say it's quite high I think I'm still entitled to conclude with um, the hypothesis that makes it high um, maybe you don't mean in quite such an extent that you can't say anything about um about that maybe it's just worth pointing out i'm not really trying to judge god um i'm really just trying to talk about like what our expectations should be given a certain hypothesis and um that doesn't seem to be anything wrong with that i'm not um i mean i think randall you agree right that it's okay to sort of say well if god's like this this is how it would change my expectation of a given hypothesis or a given piece of evidence right that's not wrong because it's judging god or something would you agree with that
0: yeah. Again, I, I said like if if we if we limit ourselves to that there is this agent who is omnipotent, omniscient, and perfectly good, and that's all else. That's all that we say. Uh, and then then your argument relative to the evil, the distribution's uh, intensity of evil in the world, that provides more of evidence for indifference than theism, just on itself. Yeah. Uh, what one thing I'd want to say about the so the converse contenders question, um, I, th- I think we can give examples of particular beings that have rights over other beings that others don't so for example a parent or legal caregiver can have the authority to bring a child in for a medical procedure that some stranger does not Um, and uh, just follow that reasoning out I mean if we think about God as the absolute creator and sustainer of all things God presumably has rights over creation that no creature would have um, and so we have to be careful about saying, well, because no creature would be justified in allowing X or Y, that God would not be justified in allowing X or Y. We have to be careful about that reasoning.
1: Gotcha. And next, Super Chat coming in from Frequency Point says, if humans did not exist, God would gods would not exist. More of an assertion. But thank you for your donation to the charity. We appreciate that. And next question, let's see. Slamourn says, does YouTube get thirty percent of the super chat. It does, but in this case for the charity streams, we always take uh amounts from other debates where we have super chats and we fill that thirty percent in. So your uh super chats are in the fullest sense one hundred percent are is going to the charity. Brian Stevens, thanks for your question. I'm gonna jump to that, but first I, I saw Smokey Saint asked one said for the Sinise Charity, thank you for doing that, all gentlemen, all of you. Randall, I'm a fan. Your mind is appreciated is an appreciated asset to apologetics. Got a fan out there, Randall. And then also... At least one. <laughs> oh, that's, yeah, that's... uh. And it, we've... Let's see. Oh, sorry, Brian Stevens. I almost missed it. So they said, question, if someone tells a story for years as truth and then finds out this story was a satirical story, would it be moral... To continue to tell it as truth
0: uh, that would I mean that's um, all things being equal I mean I think the question really boils down to is it moral to lie right if the idea is that you communicate something to another person with the intent that they come to believe it is true yet you believe it to be false or that it is and it is false well then that would be lying and so there are, more, there are cases where it's morally sufficient reason to lie. I think if you're hiding Jews in the basement and the Nazis knock on your door, then you are justified in lying to them. So it would depend what would be the circumstances under which you'd be telling the satirical story as true.
1: You got it. And with that want to say thanks everybody we're going to wrap up we will i promise we'll try to go longer next time we do want to respect the time of our debaters and also all of you as i'm sure you've got plenty to do today or maybe tonight if you're watching from far away we hope that you have a great rest of your day or night we appreciate you tuning in to watch no matter what walk of life you're from and one final reminder our guests are linked in the description so it doesn't have to end here and so with that. Thank you, gentlemen, it's been a true pleasure to have you, Randall and Alex.
2: Thanks very
0: thanks. much. Yeah, it's been, it's been a delight talking with you, Alex, and um, you I, especially like in, in the midst of, of everything that's going on in the world and American politics, how divisive <laughs> things can be. It's nice that we can have, as they say, don't talk about religion and politics. Well, we talked about religion civilly and, and we had a lot of fun doing it, so thanks. Mm-hmm.
1: 100 percent this has been excellent and so thank you guys and i will be back in about 58 i'll say about 58 seconds to do a post credit scene giving you guys updates on the channel stuff like that slam rn thanks for your last super chat said for gary sinise appreciate that slam rn and so with that thank you all and as mentioned i'll be right back in just a moment folks thanks so much